Good. But today we're going to look at Joseph and his brothers, which is a very exciting one. Because the New Testament doesn't explicitly talk about Joseph as a type of Christ. It is not uh, one where it says, and Joseph, who was a type of him who was to come. Right? So we're going to talk a little bit about, the, about how to understand biblical typology. Now, does anyone want to hazard a guess as to how you would define, or not even define, how would you describe a type, a biblical type in the Old Testament? meaning that you're not sure exactly what that word means. Okay, good. So, let's learn. What do I mean when I say a type? Okay, Dave, you try. A foreshadowing of Christ. That's an excellent start to our definition. A foreshadowing of Christ. Martha, what do you want to add? In some way, the, the character displays some quality of Christ. So, uh, I really like both of those. Now, what about that? if we say knew that, uh, that Jesus had brown hair? Would someone with brown hair in the Old Testament? What's the, what's the nature of, the, of how he has to be, how the person has to, or, or thing has to be similar to Jesus? In his character, in his actions... Okay, so it has to be something significant, not how tall he was or anything like that. And there are types of Christ. There are also, there are also things that can be types of other things. Um, we've already, we uh, have already seen, I think, in, the, in Eric's flood one, we talked about how the flood corresponds in some way to baptism. Um, so uh, the, there's all sorts of interesting... Um, there's all sorts of interesting ways in which foreshadowing can occur. So you know how literature works, right? If you see a character and he happens to find, you know, a big carving knife, uh, you know, in the pantry in Act One, dun dun dun, you can guess that that carving knife is not incidental to the story. But especially if you know you're in a mist- you're in a like murder mystery genre, you can assume that that knife is going to end up sticking into somebody later on in the story. Right, foreshadowing. You're looking. You're, you're seeing something earlier that gives you a hint about what's coming later. All right. Here's how I would define a type. Very, very much just a uh, very connected to what uh, Dave and Martha shared. I would say that a type is a prophetic symbol or a prophetic picture. So there are prophecies that are just prophecies on the face of it. You know. Jesus will be, you know, the Messiah will come from the line of Judah, right? Or uh, Bethlehem Epaphra, you are not the least among the tribes of Judah, for out of you will come one who will rule my people, right? The Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. This is not a prophecy with words. This is a prophecy that's a picture, a prophetic symbol or a prophetic picture, which means that God ordained that someone or something in the Old Testament would foreshadow the redemption which he purposed to bring to fruition, to bring to completion in Jesus in the New Testament. So that's a little bit more complicated definition. But again, you see that, that word foreshadow. Someone or something in the Old Testament which foreshadows the redemption that God's going to bring about in Jesus. And it's actually, critically, 
it says God ordained, meaning it has to be something that God intended. It had to be something that God intends to foreshadow. So we're doing a little bit of, we're looking at what, we're, we're looking into the mind of God and seeing how is he giving us pictures ahead of time of what Jesus and his redemption is going to look like. Okay, any questions on just that definition? A prophetic type, a prophetic symbol, or a prophetic picture? So not a prophecy of words, a picture of, of something that is going to lead forward to Jesus' uh, atonement. So it is a different kind of prophecy. It's a different kind of prophecy. Again, not saying, thus and such shall happen, thus says the Lord. It's giving us someone or something to look at that tells us something about what Jesus is going to be and do. It's It's not accidental, but it's intentional, meaning that God actually intends us to see these things. He intends us to look for Jesus and to see him in the patterns that are woven in the Old Testament. So when we see, I'll give a, a hint at what's to come, when we see uh, God's king reigning in Jerusalem, that is intended by God to teach us about Jesus. It's not, oh, how cool. It just so happens that there's connections. You know, I mean, you, you, you go out into the sky and you, and, and you see, oh, look, that cloud looks like a ducky. Right? That's a correspondence. Now, of course, in the big picture, since God is sovereign over all things, even the shape of clouds, we know that he intended that. But is there anything significant about the fact that you see a ducky in that cloud? N- not, no, no. It's, it's an accidental correspondence. and It's an accidental connection. But this is God actually painting us pictures in the Old Testament that he's going to show how they work in the New Testament. The other idea with types is that it escalates. Things get bigger and better. Or, in a few cases, bigger and worse. Right? But it's always something smaller that's... I mean, if you think about it, if I... uh, um, uh, It's like my kids right now are really enjoying me taking a flashlight down there and them standing here, and it being dark outside, and casting their shadow against the house. And look how, I mean, here my, my little six-year-old is enormous on the, you know, on the house. You know. So in the same way, a type is something smaller that projects, when it actually finally comes in Jesus, to something rather enormous. There's escalation. There's, so, for instance, if we have, you know, who is more... Who is more dangerous and deadly, Haman or Satan? Satan. Satan. Thank you. (laughs) Satan. Satan is more dangerous and deadly. Haman, I would argue, is a type of the great enemy of our souls. Now, was he horrible and destructive and dangerous? Of course he was. Highly so. But, of course, Satan far more so. The type escalates when, it, when you go from the, the prophecy or the prophetic picture to the fulfillment, it gets blown up. So, seed to flower to fruit. Sometimes you even have um, things, that, things that happen in multiple stages, like the exodus from Egypt gets turned in the prophets to talking about the, the return of, 
from slavery and exile from Babylon. And that's you know, the fruit from the seed to the flower. But of course, all of that is heading toward freedom from sin that bring, is brought about by Jesus. So it's escalating, it's getting bigger, it's getting clearer as you go forward. And it's actually more common, if you're looking for how is Jesus most commonly seen in the Old Testament, typology is more common than explicit prophecy. Types occur all over. There, there are lots of prophecies that are like a prophet says, thus says the Lord, that fulfill, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But actually, I would argue that there are more, that this is more common. Um, and you can see it more readily uh, if you've got eyes that are trained to look. Okay, so those are just some ground rules for how to look at types. Types of types. Now, I'm using that word in two different ways, right? Kinds of types, kinds of things to look for in a type. They can be persons. They can be persons. One of the hugest and most explicit type of Jesus Christ, anyone want to hazard a guess? And it's actually um, like a a negative one, not a positive one. Adam. Adam is... The big type. What passage in the New Testament talks about the connections between Jesus and Adam? Anyone remember? What, what book? Start there. Romans. Romans chapter 5 talks about just as in Adam all die, so now in Christ all will be made alive. You know, through the one man, death came to us all. But through the one man, life comes, right? So Adam is a foreshadowing or a prefiguring. He corresponds to Jesus in very significant ways. Every single person that's connected to Adam dies. Jesus is the head of the new humanity. Everyone connected to him lives. So the old, the Romans 5 is saying, no, there's a connection. As is Adam, so is Jesus. So at persons, people can be a type. Uh, someone else, give me a quick other person that they think is somehow a type of Jesus. David, David how is David a type of Jesus, Keith? Excellent. David is the king who has a heart like God's, the, the, the king from the line of Judah who will rule, who rules the nations. Yeah, excellent. All right, places can be types. Some places that are types would be Egypt. Egypt in the Old Testament, what does Egypt represent in the Old Testament? What's the one word that you would associate with Egypt in the Old Testament? Slavery. And do you want to stay in Egypt? No, you want to come out of Egypt. So coming out of Egypt. Now, how does the New Testament connect coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, to a bigger and better reality in the New Testament? Coming out of your slavery to sin. So Egypt represents slavery. In the New Testament, that's blown up to talk about our slavery to sin. Canaan. What does Canaan represent in the Old Testament? The promised land. Now, how is that blown up in the New Testament? 
heaven. Canaan, the promised land. I am bound, I am bound. We love that song, don't we? I'm bound for the promised land, right? So it's not just a little bit of, a little bit of property on one side of the, of the Mediterranean Sea anymore. It's now the new heavens and the new earth, in fact. Babylon. What does Babylon represent in the Old Testament? And especially if you think Tower of Babel, which is where Babylon eventually would be built. Yeah, it's the world in opposition to God. And in the New Testament, and especially in Revelation, it talks about, it uses Babylon imagery all the time to talk about, uh, about the world that is the great hostile power opposed to God. So places can be types. Objects can be types. Actual physical things. The bronze serpent. How does Jesus use the bronze serpent and shows that it refers to him? It's talking about him, John 3. He was lifted up. The bronze servant is lifted up for everyone to look at. And what happens if you look? You're saved. It gets blown up bigger and better. What happens in the New Testament? Jesus is lifted up. Is he lifted up? Is that exaltation or is that humiliation? It's in his humiliation, right? He's lifted up upon the cross. And everyone who what? looks upon him with faith. So the object, this brazen serpent, the, the, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, is, and we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about the, uh, the Exodus. Manna, another one. Uh, manna is, how does Jesus in John 6 connect himself to the manna? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. How was the manna provided in the, in the Old Testament? God rains down, God, God brings bread out of heaven. Jesus says, I am the true bread who came down out of heaven. The manna is supposed to teach us about Jesus. Okay, so objects can be types. So it's not always just a person, in other words. An event. Event can be typological. Uh, we, Eric, we talked, Eric talked a ton about the flood. What does the flood represent in the new covenant? God's ultimate judgment if you just substitute the word ultimate in, you know, so you have the type and then you have the ultimate thing. If, if it's a this, then it's the ultimate this in the New Testament. Captivity. Again, we already talked about that with Babylon. Captivity in Egypt, captivity in Babylon represents slavery to sin and coming out of that in Jesus. Um, offices. You know, different roles that people play. The biggest three being prophets, priests, and kings. By the way, our Christmas series is going to be talking about Jesus as what we really need. It's kind of cute and kitschy. What we really need for Christmas. We need a prophet, we need a priest, and we need a king. And uh, you see that all, anytime you have someone speaking for God in the Old Testament, that is a picture of the one who is not just speaking the word of God, but the one who is the word of God. Right? So Jesus blows all these categories up. And institutions, like Passover. It's actually in the passage BJ is going to preach today. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, the, the spotless lamb whose blood is shed to cover and so that the angel of death will pass by. Right? Jesus is that Passover. The year of Jubilee. You know, when all debts are freed, all land reverts, it's joy and gladness and jubilation is a picture of the the exaltation and the celebration that happens as God's people are saved. So those are the kinds of things that you can look for. 
A couple principles of typology. Avoid two extremes. Don't fall off either side of the donkey. See how well that guy's balanced on there? It would be... It's, so a lot of people say, you know, people, some people just really don't like types. Some people just really think that, that, you know, that's just a bad way of interpreting scripture. I would argue that Luke 24 tells us that we're supposed to be looking for Jesus in more than just the explicit promises. We're supposed to be looking in... And then, and then, or they'll say, you can if the New Testament tells you that it is. If, it's, if, if it says you know, that Isaac is a type of him who was to come, then you can, you can say that. But, if it, but, but it's rare. Well, I would say, no, don't fall off the donkey that way. There's, there's correspondence to Jesus all over the place. You should be looking for them. Uh, the other one is, the other side of the donkey, whoops, donkey, um, you, seeing a new one in every verse. Like, oh, how's it different? You know, verse 6, how does it, where's the type there? Verse 7, where's the type there? It, you know, you have to, the tent pegs of the temple are probably not typological. The temple is typological. What is the temple typological of, by the way? The church, yeah, and the place where God dwells with his people. But that doesn't mean that a tent peg necessarily, and whether the tent peg outside versus inside is of brass or of, or of silver, you know, don't run away with that. Right. And, uh, but a type does not require an explicit reference in the New Testament. Don't don't say, I wonder if this is a, uh, I wonder if this is showing me Jesus. I wonder if God means to show me Jesus in this passage, but I'm not quite sure because the New Testament doesn't tell me. For instance, let's show an example. Jonah. Is Jonah, does the New Testament tell us that Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, what does Jesus say about that? The promise is the sign of Jonah, right? Craig preached about that. And Jesus is how represented by Jonah going into the belly of the fish. He's going to be in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he's raised back up. Just as Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So Jesus explicitly makes the connection. But it doesn't always have to be explicit. I'll give you another one of a similar kind. Who's that? Esther. I would argue strongly that Esther is a type of Jesus. This is the passage Schuyler preached. How long has it been since Esther has received her death sentence before she goes to the king? Anyone remember? They fast for three days and three nights, and then she goes to the king, and what happens? She is exalted and raised up. I, so now, nowhere does the New Testament... Esther was raised up after three days and three nights of fasting... So Jesus was raised up from the grave on the third day. But I think we're absolutely supposed to see that correspondence. It doesn't have to be explicit in the New Testament. Jonah, it is explicit. Esther, not explicit, but they're both, I I would argue, they're both valid. Uh, Yeah, Jonah's three days versus Esther's three days. Three days, by the way. Whenever you see a passage in, in the Old Testament that has three days, be suspicious at least that something bigger is going on. Lots of cool things happen on the third day. And I think and that's intentional. You know, do you think do you think God was like, mm, I wonder which day I should bring salvation to my people? Second day, you know, fifth day. I know, third day. Oh wait, 
hmm, maybe I'll raise my son on the third day too. You know, no, this is it's absolutely it's absolutely intended by God to show salvation on the third day. Okay, this one's a little tiny bit trickier. The type is symbolic in its original context. Now, this one is probably the this is the most complicated idea in our in our thing today. The type itself, David himself, Jonah himself has to be symbolic in its original context. That's why the tent peg I don't think is a type, right? The tent peg isn't necessarily symbolic. Like you could say, you could you could stretch it. You could say the tent peg is the is is the foundation of the solid God God's temple being solidly placed on the foundation. Yeah, but the Bible doesn't give you warrant to say that, right? The 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 idea has to be a symbol in and of itself. Let me show you this manna. What is manna in the Old Testament? What was it a symbol of? God's provision. Manna is a symbol of God providing for his people what they need, and specifically bread, right? So manna is already a symbol. It's already symbolic of the idea that God provides for his people. And that's why when Jesus shows up and says that he's the bread of life, how is that symbolic? What's the symbol of that? God providing for his people people. God's temporal provision for his people is a picture of God's ultimate provision for his people. And so you see the different connections. Manna to Jesus. But manna itself is connected to, is connected to the idea, the symbol of God's provision for his people, which points us to the ultimate provision for his people. Right? So, it's, so it actually has to be symbolic in its original context. Mm. They're serving a very practical function, but what does what does a king, what does God's king represent in the Old Testament? What was Adam supposed to do for God in the in the garden? Rule over the world. So that God's king represents God's rule over the world. So any king, any especially the, the good kings, represents and, and even the bad kings represent the twisting of God's intention to rule the world through, through a man. Right? A prophet, Samuel, anyone who speaks the word of God, so a prophet's office is symbolic of the fact that God speaks to, to rule his people. And so any prophet is connected. Some, some of these categories are big enough in themselves to be able to sustain it. Kingship is a, is a category of itself. So anyone connected to the idea of kingship is connected to that symbol. I know that's a little technical. So, all right. We're going to get to Joseph, don't worry. Finally, distinguish what is essential and what is incidental. So, you know how in, in parables, like, so I'm changing gears a little bit. In a parable, you know, you're looking for the big idea. You're not looking necessarily for how each piece of the parable connects to something. It's not, a parable is not intended to drive every single thing in the parable doesn't necessarily mean something. The big idea is what you're looking for. And the same thing is true with a type. So, for instance, this is a quote. Joseph's, sorry, Joseph's, I've got Joseph on the brain. Jonah's expulsion from the great fish typifies Christ's resurrection. But Jonah's restoration to the land, like the fact that he was brought up onto dry land, doesn't necessarily typify Israel's restoration to Palestine. Right? The fact that, that that's an incidental 
more detail in the text. The big idea is he's, re- he's resurrected. He's restored out of the fish. So don't press the details necessarily. Like Esther was wearing her crown as she goes into the king. Well, that crown must represent something about... Well, of course, the crown, you know, the crown rep- means she's the queen and Jesus... You know, but you don't have to press... You know, what does her robe represent? Well, that must represent Jesus' righteousness. Don't go that, that necessarily that deep if, the, if it doesn't warrant. Stick with the main idea. All right, and this was a lovely quote that I couldn't find the attestation for. God, in the types of the last dispensation, meaning the Old Testament, was teaching his children their letters. In this dispensation, right, right, teaching them the alphabet. In this dispensation, in the New Testament, he's teaching them to put the letters together, and they find that the letters arrange them as they will, spell Christ and nothing but Christ. So the pictures of the Old Testament are designed to teach us about Jesus. Okay, let's get to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his brothers. How much time do I have to do Joseph and his brothers? I, but I did feel like it was important to do 957. We can do this. Let's, okay, so now audience participants. Let's go over the basic contours of Joseph's story. I will start. I'll give you the first one. He's the favored son of his father. Joseph is the favored son of his father. I'll give you the first two. He receives dreams of exaltation, right? What does that result in? His brothers hate him. Very good. His brothers hate him. What does that result in? They sell him into slavery in Egypt for how many? 20 pieces of silver, right? So we have his favored status as the favored son, and now he's beginning a deep descent into humiliation. His brothers hate him. His brothers sell him as a slave in Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. He's represented as dead to his father, right? They go back, they bring the robe, and they dip it in goat's blood, and they say, this is your son. What happens next? Uh, yeah, okay. So he, first he's sold into Egypt into Potiphar's house, and, he's, and he's, God gives him favor. He's, again, he has a little bit of exaltation. He's raised to a position of exaltation in the house, made overseer. Then, Nikki, then he refuses to sin with Potiphar's wife, and he's falsely accused and imprisoned. So, you know, this is how the story's going. It's going down. It's going down. Okay, what happens after that? What happens in the prison? He's exalted a little bit again. Ooh, we got three days. Martha's going to take us to three days. So, but this is, this is a lovely sentence. In the prison, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. I wouldn't expect you to remember this one. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, even in the midst of his sufferings. Right? Then Pharaoh's cupbaker, cupbaker, cupbearer, and baker are imprisoned. And what happens, Martha? He interprets their dreams, and their dreams are. And, uh, yeah, and the, the, the interpretation is that he interprets their dreams that is, in three days, you're going to be raised up. The baker gets raised up in a way he doesn't like. The cupbearer gets raised up in a way he does like. But again, you have, you have resurrection on the third day for the cupbearer, which I don't think is incident. I think that's a detail, but I think God sometimes does work in those details. Joseph interprets their dreams correctly. Does the cupbearer remember him? No! He's still down in the, He's still down here. But Pharaoh now does what? He has dreams. Ominous dreams. So, so Joseph's still down here in the prison. But what happens after Pharaoh has the dreams? 
The cupbearer remembers him. Joseph is brought out of the prison and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And what happens now? He's exalted. How high is he exalted? The second in command. Pharaoh says, aside from the throne, no one in Egypt will be greater than you. Right? So he's raised to rule Egypt at the right hand of Pharaoh. Oh my goodness! And now it gets better. What happens as a result of his, his exaltation? What is he able to do? He, he's able to save. Next slide. He gathers food, right, against the famine, coming in the famine. It's seven years to do that. And then all the earth comes to Joseph to buy grain. All the earth. So who does he save? He's saving, he's saving his family. He's also saving the whole earth. But specifically, the emphasis is on his family. Jacob sends his son to Egypt for food. Joseph, what, he, he, he decides that he needs to test his brothers to see what's in their hearts. He asks them for Benjamin. He places the cup in Benjamin's sack, if you remember. And then when he exposes that the cup is in Benjamin's sack, now we get a little side quest, right? Any of you gamers? You've got a side quest going on. What's Judah's side quest? What does he do? He doesn't protect it. Well, he does protect his father. But what does he offer to do when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack? He says, take me instead. He substitutes himself. So Judah is is a micro in the midst of this big thing. Judah is also, he's substituting his own life for the... the in this case, is being substituted for the guilty. I mean, Benjamin's not really guilty, but he's the one that's under the sentence, right? So Judah is substituting himself. He offers himself in the place of Benjamin. Side quest over. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, brings Jacob and the whole family down to Egypt and provides for them in the best place of the land, right? They get Goshen, they get the best of the land. And he rescues the seed of promise from death. So, how's his arc go? His arc goes like this, and then to this, and the fact that he's here allows him to pour out blessings on God's people and the whole world. Now, the New Testament never tells us Joseph is a type of Jesus, but do you see in that arc a picture of what Messiah is to do. I hope so. So, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with our blind and fuzzy readings. Here's how often, I, here's how different times I've heard this. Here's how we apply the, the Joseph story. You need, to, you need to be like Jesus in forgiving, or you need to be like Joseph in forgiving those who have wronged you. Right? Joseph was deeply wronged. He forgave. You also need to forgive. So what's the, where's the connection drawn between Joseph and who? Joseph and me. I, Joseph is like this, I need to be like this. Okay? What's that missing? It's missing Jesus. Now, even let's add Jesus in. Be like Joseph and Jesus in forgiving those who have wronged you. Joseph did that. Jesus did that right on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So be like Joseph, be like Jesus, forgive those who have wronged you. It's, it's good as far as it goes. 
it's still missing the grand story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So we don't want to just look at the Old Testament characters and say, be like them. And even we don't just want to use Jesus as the one we imitate. Yes, do we imitate Jesus? Yes, 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 yes. But we also look for him to do the things that we can't do. All right, another one similar to this. Be like Joseph in fleeing temptation. Joseph fled sexual temptation and kept himself pure from sin. You do the same. And again, who's the, what's the correspondence being made through? Joseph to me, without going first to Jesus. Or, fuzzier, meaning like a little bit clearer, be like Joseph and Jesus in fighting temptation. So Joseph was, was um, fle- fled temptation with Potiphar's wife. Jesus fled temptation from the, overcame temptation from the serpent. We should do the same. Of course we should do the same. But was Jesus just showing us an example when he resisted temptation in the wilderness? No. He was embracing the cross, which we couldn't do. So we need to, so those are some ways that you could take Joseph and just be a little bit more wooden. I want us to see him through the, through the lens of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So he is a picture. Ah, we have time. He's a picture of Jesus' death. Joseph and Job probably represent the two best types, along with Isaiah 53, of the righteous sufferer. Joseph is not presented as having any flaw. Now, was Joseph a sinner? Yes. Did Joseph need forgiveness from sin? But the, but, but the scripture never, never points out his sin. He's presented as, as innocent. Is he deserving of anything that for his brothers to hate him? Is he deserving of anything for them to sell him as a slave? Is he deserving of anything to be cast in the dungeon? No, 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 no. He's the innocent sufferer. He's suffering despite the fact he's done nothing wrong. And in, in that, he is a picture of Jesus, who is the spotless lamb who's sacrificed. So his being made to suffer, though guiltless, is showing us a picture. And Jesus blows it up on the wall, because not only is he just presented as sinless, he's actually sinless. Right? All right, so he's a picture of Jesus' death. He's a picture of Jesus' exaltation. Oh, my goodness. He is raised, he's raised to the right hand of the throne, which is the exact position that Jesus is raised to, right? You know, Jesus is exalted to, is he exalted, you know, in his, in his messianic role, he doesn't take the, if you will, he doesn't take the main throne, right? He's, he's on the right hand of the Father of glory, right? So Jesus is raised to rule as, but Joseph really is ruling under God, he's, under, under Pharaoh, sorry, Joseph is really ruling all of Egypt. And in the same way, Jesus has the Father's authority to rule both the church, small of the church, and all given to him on heaven and earth to rule the, the whole universe. It's a picture of Jesus' salvation. Because from his throne, from his exalted position, Jesus is able to provide both bread for the world and specifically life. He provides life for Abraham's seed. Right? What's, what's the big crisis in the famine? 
Yeah, the world and Egypt are in danger, but is the text as concerned about that? What's the text? Why is the, why is the famine such a, such a big, horrible deal? It, it threatens. If Jacob's family dies, God's promises are made void. So that's what's at stake. And Joseph, from his position, is able to provide, is to provide continuity. He's able to keep the promise going. He's the deliverer who saves Abraham's family. And we know from last week with Mike, Abraham's family is representative of the people of God. So Joseph, Joseph is able to keep life, give life to the seed, just as Jesus does. And it's a picture of God's sovereign promises. Uh, sorry, sorry, sovereign promise, providence. Remember that, there, that uh, in, Gen- in Genesis 50, he says, you meant it for evil. He's comforting his brothers. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Fast forward all the way to Acts, and the apostles are praying after being, after being, uh, um, after being persecuted by the, the Sanhedrin. And they pray to the Lord, and they talk about how the fact that, that, and they do it a couple times, and a couple different, they talk about how God was superintending the wickedness, the most wicked thing that's ever been done in the history of the world, to slay God's Messiah, is actually whatever your plan and purpose predestined to occur. So God turned, and intended to turn all these things for good. So Joseph's whole arc, his humiliation and his exaltation, his metaphorical death and his resurrection, and actually there's a mini one in there, right? He goes down into the pit and is raised back up, which is, you know, that's in the, in the big arc, that's another kind of side quest or something. He goes down and back up in his death and resurrection, but his whole arc is death and resurrection. His suffering, though blameless, his role as the savior of God's people, his provision of bread for the world, show him to be a glorious type of Jesus the Messiah. So when you see someone, now he's a biggie, but if you're, as you're looking for people, as you're looking at prophets and priests and kings and judges and, and ordinary men and women, you're looking for how does their, how does their story, how is it shaping our, my understanding of what Jesus was to do? Okay, any questions before we end? Oh my goodness, we've got time for Questions on Joseph or questions on types? Yeah. You, I mean, you, got, you kind of gave us the cautionary tale of, you know, uh, don't, don't directly associate a correlation to a God-intended typology, right? And so how do, we, how do we look at some of these passages and find God's intentionality instead of, like, reading the chicken bones or the tea leaves and saying, this must mean this? Right. How, okay, so that what... Skylar's question is, how do we actually actively look and assume that God is seeking to give us pictures of Jesus without, you know, going nuts on the details? Honestly, it's a learned skill. And honestly, two men who are both skilled might come, or women, might come to slightly different conclusions. I'll tell you one that's kind of on the bellwether for me. Is it, is it intentional? Is it not intentional? And is, is Rahab's scarlet thread. Is that, is that, is the, is the, you've, got this, you've got different things about it which could lead you to think that it's representing Jesus and his, and his sacrifice. But I don't know. I'm not sure whether the scarlet is incidental or if it's, you know, it just happened to be a red rope or whether it's 
So, you know, is the, how is the rope, is the rope essential to the story? So, you know, so two preachers could, could do different things with that one, and the Lord will reveal in time what he intended. But, so, yes, do, is it safer to stick with bigger things? Yeah. Uh, it's safe, but, but it doesn't mean you can't learn, this can't be learned. And I want you to learn it. I don't want you. When BJ and I stand up here and preach the Old Testament and we say, this, brothers and sisters, is typological of what Jesus would do. Here would be a, a tragedy if you were to go, oh my goodness, I never would have seen that. I'm so glad, Pastor, that you told me because I never would have seen that. I want it to be a situation, you know, the more that happens, the more it's either one of two things is happening. Either I'm going too crazy and bridging correspondences that are too much, or you guys aren't growing in your understanding of how to see Jesus with, you know, read the Bible with Jesus goggles on, right? We we actually do have the secret decoder ring. Now I'm mixing my metaphors um, from the cereal box. Um, we're actually off these. Okay, so time and experience. Right? If you've been in Christ one year, don't expect to see this with the same clarity as you will when you've been in the faith 20 years. Or, if you've never been taught, you've been in the faith 20 years, but you've never been taught this, and you're just beginning to see it. Skilled believers? Sure, you, sure. Check your ideas. If you're like, oh my goodness, you know, look at Boaz. Mm. Boaz, kinsman redeemer. Mm, I wonder. I wonder. Oh, look. He redeems, the, he redeems a bride for himself. And you're like, okay, am I just seeing that? Well, check it out with, check it out with someone else. What do you think? Well, what do you think? What do you guys think? Do you think that Boaz redeeming a bride for himself from the nations sounds, tip, sounds like it's got a nice correspondence to Jesus, or is that incidental? Not, not incidental at all. Not incidental at all. Now, is it the fact that she put seven, she had seven measures of barley in her, in, her, in her shirt as she's going home after she got engaged? Is that like the seven spirits of God in the Revelation? Is that more incidental? That's more incidental. You know, if it mentions that she was, you know, it was the barley harvest. Is it significant that it was the barley harvest and not the wheat harvest or not the spelt harvest or not the millet harvest? Yeah, probably not. It's harvest time! It's the time of, of feasting and rejoicing in God's salvation coming through the provision of blessing and bounty. That's the main idea. It doesn't matter whether it's barley or whether it's wheat. Okay, i got to let you go. But thanks for a good discussion. Come hungry for more. Next week we do, Abra- uh, we do the Exodus.